0: From the gospel according to luke chapter 24 verse 48 you are eyewitnesses of these things and now i hand over you to you the command of my father stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high and then he led them outside as far as bethany where he blessed them with uplifted hands and while he was in the act of blessing them he was parted from them and was carried up to heaven, they worshipped him and turned back to Jerusalem with great joy and spent their days in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this part of his word. Just a few months before the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, a new portrait of her was displayed in London in the most famous art gallery. And of course, the beautiful queen was displayed in her royal regalia with the crown on her head, with the jewels that were there and the magnificent orbed scepter, and all that goes with royalty. And two little American girls were there, and they looked at the beautiful queen and all of her splendor. And one of them asked a typically American question. She said... What is she doing? And the other one said, oh, silly, she's (laughs) reigning. Well, now, this is what most people have when we think about the ascension of Christ and we think about him reigning. We have a static conception of it. We do not think of him in the power of a reign that we should think of him in. But if you go back to the pages of the New Testament. And you look at these earliest followers of the Lord Jesus, you see a tremendous thing take place in them. For 40 days, Jesus had been appearing and disappearing in their midst. He had proven to them, as St. Luke tells us, by many infallible proofs, that he was resurrected from the dead. He wanted them to know it physically. He was resurrected from the dead but there was a tremendous change that had taken place about him. His resurrection body was different. He could appear and disappear, and yet he could sit down and eat a meal with him. And it taxes our description today because we have no words for such splendor and such majesty as God wrought through the resurrection of Christ. But after 40 days of appearing to his own, It was time for him then to ascend to his Father, and they should begin to think of him in a new and different way. This is why in the 20th chapter of John, when Mary falls at the feet of the risen Christ to worship him, he tells her to cease clinging to him, that he has not yet ascended to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. It's because this risen Christ, who is now to ascend Uh, to his father, wishes us to understand that our relationship to him will be one of dynamic and one of spiritual power. And so it's said here, instead of being sad, that these earliest Christians, when they saw Jesus ascend into the heavens, and by the way, if you're one of those people who have a great deal of difficulty with the miracles in the Bible, and you're troubled because of the Geography of Palestine and his ascension upward, or because of astronomy, then let me suggest that you uh, read C.S. Lewis's little book on the miracles, and it will help you out at this point. Uh, what the Lord God is conveying to us here is an impression of splendor and sublim- sublimity and glory. And uh, the Lord Christ is above all nature. And that which he does is not restricted by what we think of in material terms. And so he gave them a great commandment that they were to go into all the world and be his witnesses. And then he led them out, outside of Jerusalem as far as Bethany and he blessed them with his uplifted hand. And then a, he began to ascend and a cloud. A cloud is always a symbol of great glory in the scriptures. A cloud received him out of their sight. But the thing that impresses me most here is that these disciples turned back to Jerusalem with great joy. They turned back to Jerusalem with great joy, waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Now, when you've seen someone whom you love intensely separated from you, knowing that you will never, never, never see them again in this world, it breaks your heart to part from them. If it's someone you love and from whom you'll be separated for a year or two, you go to the airport and you sit there in the waiting room and you wish that the minutes would flee away and the agony of it all would be over. And finally, when their aircraft is boarded and the plane goes down the runway and it ascends, you watch it until it is a speck in the sky and they are gone away. You turn back, not with a feeling of great joy, but with sadness. But look how different it is here. These knew the reigning power of Christ. And knowing his reigning power, they knew that it would not be static, but that he would be at work through those who trusted in him. And so they come back to Jerusalem with great joy. Malcolm Mugridge, who has recently come to a faith in Christ, describes them this way. He says something happened to Christ's disciples transforming them from rather inarticulate, cowardly men who ran away for cover when their leader was arrested into the most lion-hearted, eloquent, quick-witted, yes, and even gay evangelist the world has ever known. Irresistible in their oratory, indomitable in their def- defiance, captivating in their charm, overwhelming in the love which shone in their faces, in their words and in their deeds so that in the most literal sense they turned the world upside down with their crazy allegiance to one Jesus. And that's precisely what happened. They did turn the world upside down and Christ is reigning today. And so we say, how is the ascended Christ reigning? And that's why I had printed out for you that magnificent passage from Colossians Because as St. Paul seeks to help these Christians in this town of Colossae understand that if you literally die with Christ, if you die to self, that he may be Lord God, master, controller of your whole life, then he reigns in you, but self must be dethroned. John Calvin, the great commentator, says, you cannot reign with Christ unless you die with Christ. You must be willing to die to self, said Jesus. Lose your life for my sake, then you'll find it. And that old Adam dies slow, but die he must. And so then we come to that third chapter. And as I have alluded to earlier, the earliest Christians, when they lined up for baptism, apparently they were given white robes as a splendor of a brand new life in Christ. They went into the waters of baptism and were buried with Christ in baptism, so to speak, then raised into a brand new life. Now Paul tells them this, if you are raised to that new life, then you've got to prove it by living it. He tells them to keep their minds fixed and controlled by heaven. We are to have faith in Christ reigning through us. Where Christ reigns in power, give your hearts to heavenly things, not to the passing things of this earth. Perhaps this is the reason we have not made the impression on the world that we ought to be making. It's because we do not give to other people the impression that Christ is truly reigning in our lives, that he is calling the shots, He's calling the plays, and we've picked up our direction and our attitude from him as he controls us in reigning power. For as far as this world is concerned, says the Apostle, You're already dead, and your true life is a hidden one. The world cannot understand, and by the world, those who uh, have not yet made their allegiance to Jesus Christ, they can't understand why you see things as they do. Love your neighbor as yourself. The world says never give a sucker an even break. The world does not look upon things as Christ looked upon them. The world says lust all you can, and Jesus tells us not to lust. The world tells us to get all you can, and Jesus says to give all you can. You see the great difference that takes place? So we get our instructions from another controller. The most dramatic illustration I ever had of this came once when I was preaching on an Air Force uh, mission up in Labrador. I'll never forget it. I had gone for a flight in an F-102 a delta wing supersonic jet fighter interceptor that weighed 15 tons and flew faster than the speed of sound and was equipped with nuclear-tipped missiles and was put there on the uh, the extreme north to intercept any Russian bombers that might be headed toward the United States. Of course, it had computers and radar screens in it, and I got permission to fly in it because once I'd been a pilot. And I'll never forget that flight because we got caught in a tremendous snowstorm. And the pilot with whom I flew called to the Goose Air Force Base and requested permission to land by ground approach controlled radar. And the controller at Goose Bay in Labrador called back to him, told him where he was, that he was vectoring him with a positive radar contact, that he could see him on his radar screen, And then the key words that came to me after we had been told to descend to a certain altitude and that we were so many miles from touchdown, a voice came on from Goose Radar and they said, Hotel Lima 24, which was the code name of our aircraft, this is Goose Radar. Stand by for your final controller. And then a voice came on and said, Hotel Lima 24, this is your final controller. Do not acknowledge any further transmission. And then he began the most precise descriptions of what we were to do. He told us that we were 38 miles from touchdown. He told us when we were drifting to the right or to the left of our glide path, we could see nothing. We were shrouded in a snowstorm. And finally he told us we were over the approach lights at the end of the runway and we plopped right down on the runway. But we obeyed him implicitly. Now the thing that has captivated my mind about this is here the pilot and here I was with him. And our lives were literally staked upon what that final controller was telling us and upon the instruments in that aircraft. We had to obey him implicitly. And we grow in the Christian faith not by being excited or thrilled by a great and emotional sermon, not by reading a book that makes us feel better. We grow by obedience. There is no other way but this. You grow in the Christian faith through obedience. And this is the only way in which you can give any proof of a new life in Christ. And St. Paul, after two chapters of speaking to these Colossians about various theological problems that existed in the church that was there, begins to talk to them in nuts and bolts languages in a very practical, common-sense way that they've got to show that they belong to Christ. Now, he says the world won't be able to see this, but he said one day Christ will come again. The word that J.B. Phillips used, a magnificent denouement, a French word, means the unfolding of a plot, the unraveling of a story with a magnificent outcome to it. One day he'll come again, says Paul. And when he comes, you'll share in that magnificent appearance. Now then, he says, in the meantime, you have to live upon this earth. So consider yourselves dead to worldly contacts. Consider yourself dead. That's a good phrase to remember. I had a great old teacher at Columbia Seminary, Dr. Manfred Gutsky, And he used to speak on this passage of Scripture. And he said if you could imagine a coffin and you were down in that coffin dead, and someone came up and insulted you and called you all kinds of dirty names, he said it wouldn't hurt a bit. It can't hurt a dead man. You can scream at that corpse and call him anything you want to. If it doesn't hurt him. Well Gutsky said this. He said a Christian has to often consider himself dead. He has to take certain things, certain insults and certain abuses. But then, too, he has to get rid of certain things. Here, Paul is quite specific. He says that we are to have nothing to do with sexual immorality, chastity. says, Dr. William Barclay was the one brand new virtue which which Jesus Christ brought into the world and which his followers carried out implicitly. Chastity simply means no sex before marriage. Chastity means sex in marriage and in marriage alone. Regardless of what all the study committees say, you will be judged by what Jesus Christ says himself and what he has spoken through his apostles, and that's what the words mean or else language cannot convey thought. No immorality, dirty-mindedness, uncontrolled passion, evil desire, here, St. Paul is like a, 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 a man who has a bunch of condemned people in a jail, and he picks up a list, and he calls out a number of people who are to be executed. And he says, all right, I'm going to call out this list, and you're going to be shot and put to death. Dirty-mindedness, come forward. You're to be shot. Filthy conversation, come forward. You're to be shot. He goes down the list. Lust, evil desire come forward. You're to be shot. These things are to be put to death. And as they are put to death, and that's a bloody hard business. But if you belong to Christ, then you've got to prove it. You've got to prove it. And this is what St. Paul is talking about here. And then he mentions something that certainly ought to send chills up and down the advertisers of America. Lust for other people's good covetousness, materialistically minded America with its ambitions for worldly success and more and more things. St. Paul says it's as serious a sin as idolatry because people begin to worship things and position more than they worship God. And listen to this unfamiliar note to most modern day preaching. It is because of these very things that the holy anger of God falls upon those who refuse to obey him. Paul taught the wrath of God as well as the love of God. And never forget, said Paul, you had your part in these dreadful things when you lived that old life. But now he wants them to know that they have put these things behind them, And here he begins to get some sins that are usually not considered so gross, but which he wants to enumerate. And call out to us, no more evil temper or furious rage. That means that he wants us to stop the fits that we throw in anger. That this hostile action which we take is to be stopped. Here again he speaks about no more evil thoughts or words about others. That we must check slander. Slander is akin to blasphemy. No more evil thoughts or words about God. No more filthy conversation. Filthy conversation is simply obscenity. And there has never been a time in the history of the planet or when obscenities have been used as much as they are today and many times by people who are supposed to be speaking in behalf of Christ in the church. And God Almighty will judge them. You've got the scripture for it right here. Don't tell one another lies anymore. For you've finished with the old man and all that he did, and you've begun life as the new man who is out to learn what he ought to be according to the plan of God. In this new man of God's design, there is no distinction. Notice what barriers are broken down. You don't have any race problem. You don't have any class problem. When you're in the Lord, when you're in Christ Jesus, those things disappear. They go away. He says, Christ is all that matters, for Christ lives in them all. Here this cultured, careful person, Paul, could say that. He wrote this letter, by the way, from prison. And do you know who he was in prison with? He was in prison with a slave by the name of Onesimus. And later Onesimus delivers this letter. He's the messenger who takes it. And Paul's going to put a little in here for Onesimus' master, too, when he gets back. Then he gives the expression of that new life in a positive way. He spoke in the negative way, now he speaks positive. He says, you are picked representatives of a new humanity, that you are purified and beloved of God himself. And so what are we to do? We're to be merciful in action, kindly in heart, humble in mind. And then here's a great phrase, accept life. Accept life. Accept the life that you have. Accept life. I saw one of our students the other day making a poster for a prayer meeting, and it was really a scream. You know what he had on that poster? <laughs> he said, if you think this life is bad, baby, wait till you die. <laughs> and then had the time of the, of, the, of the prayer meeting, well, Paul tells you here, accept life. And then he says, be most patient and tolerant with one another. Always ready to forgive if you have a difference with anyone. How about these virtues? Are they there? Forgive as freely as the Lord has forgiven you. How many times have you asked the Lord to forgive you? Every day you ask him to forgive you. Every day. Well, Paul says that's how freely you ought to be willing to forgive others. Forgive as freely as Christ has forgiven you. And above everything else, be truly loving. For love is the golden chain of all virtues. And then he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Remembering that as members of the one body, you are called to live in harmony. And never forget to be thankful to God. Then he has a little thing in there for Larry Skinner and the choir directors. He's got something about songs, hymns, spiritual songs, psalms. These are all to encourage us in our faith, and they're a part of our worship, and we're to bind it all together with the giving of thanks to God. And then he comes to an expression of this new life in the household. And this, to me, Charles Adam Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers, certainly in all of the history of the Christian church. He used to have 4,000 people on Sunday night at church. People lined up Sunday after Sunday, year after year, to hear Spurgeon preach. And Spurgeon said about this chapter, he said, it begins in heaven and it ends in the kitchen. Now here is a line that I always like to quote at home. Wives, adapt yourselves to your husbands that your marriage may be a Christian unity. You see that? (laughs) Underline that, all you wives. (laughs) Now then underline the next ones. Husbands, be sure you give your your wives much love and sympathy. That comes back, too. How much are we to love our wives? In Ephesians, he says we are to love our wives as much as Christ loved the church. My wife says if you love me that much, it won't be any problem to obey you. (laughs) It won't be any problem for any wife to obey when she's loved that much. Here is something else that was brought brand new by Christ when he came. A wife up until this time was considered property of her husband. She was a thing, and she was meant to do what he told her to do, even under the Jewish system. Her rights were gone, and she belonged to him as his property. Under the Greek and the Latin system, it was much the same. The husband could enter into any kind of relationships he wanted to outside of the marriage, but his wife was a virtual slave. And see how different Christ makes things? A wife is to recognize her husband as the head of the house. He is to be the head like Christ is the head of the church in love and in dignity and in authority. But he is to show her love and to show her sympathy. And Peter, in one of his letters, he says that sometimes your prayers are hindered because there are quarrels with your wife. If your prayers are not answered, you have to go back to that. You need to be reconciled with each other. Uh, These things are to go away. And so what Paul is bringing here is a brand new gift to women. And what about children? Children were also considered things. A parent could sell his child into slavery. If he got mad at his child, he could legally kill his child. He could maim him if he chose to. But look how different Christ makes things. As for you children, your duty is to obey your parents, for at your age, this is one of the best things you can do to show your love for the Lord. Children are to obey their parents, but look what he says. Fathers, don't overcorrect your children, or they will grow up feeling inferior and frustrated. Do you see the word of advice that he brings to us there? Sometimes in our zeal to manifest our authority, we so overcorrect our children that we destroy their confidence in their ability to do anything. And Paul could see this 2,000 years ago. It didn't take a a psychologist to explain it. So he says, don't overcorrect, don't overexercise your authority. And then there are the words for slaves that are there. He tells slaves to work as though they were working for Christ. And then he has a word for the masters of the slaves too. He tells them that they have a heavenly master and one day they must give an account unto him. And he wants them to know that. And so they have a responsibility. All different classes are dealt with here in this risen life that is meant to be lived in Christ. And do you know how we get it? We get this new life through faith in what Christ has done for us. And that's why we show that love to others. I have a book in my library called Adventures in Two Worlds by Dr. A.J. Cronin. And in it, he tells the true story of an American family named Adams. They had, a, had two teenage daughters and one little six-year-old boy whose name was Sammy. And Sammy was the idol of Mr. Adams' heart. He loved that little boy. He was his constant companion when he did his chores and when he worked in the garden. And when World War II came along, the Adams family, like a great many other families in, in America and in Canada opened their homes to children who were refugees from some distressed areas. And into the Adams' home came a little Silesian boy who was nine years old and who had the outrageous name of Paul Pietro Stanalisi. And he came to live in the Adams' house. But he was an ungrateful little stranger. He was rude and unbearable and insolent and ungrateful. He would not obey. The one thing, however, that shown about him was that he fell in love with the other little boy in the house, the little six-year-old Sammy. He followed him around like a dog and he loved him very much. There was some contaminated water with a contagious infection near to where the Adams lived. Mr. Adams had straightly instructed the children to stay away from the contaminated water. And to add to all of his crowning impertinences and insolences, this little Paul Pietro Stanalisi disobeyed and went in swimming in the contaminated water and he came down with a highly contagious septic infection. He was isolated in an attic room. And the parents worked hard day and night trying to keep things germ-free and to care for this little boy. And they literally nurtured him back to life. But while he was still contagious, he disobeyed again and went into little Sammy's room to see him, he wanted to see him so much. And without really knowing what he was doing, he communicated to the little six-year-old the deadly disease that he carried. The little six-year-old's body was not able to take it, and in less than a week, he had sickened and died. Dr. Cronin, a year after this happened, came by that household one day and saw Mr. Adams working out in the yard. And there was the little foreign boy working alongside him in the garden. And A.J. Cronin, and I'll read you his exact words, overcome by a sense of bitter injustice, said, all I can say is he's lucky, this Paul Pietro, whatever his wretched name is. And Mr. Adams reached out and put his arm around the little Silesian boy said, you won't have any trouble with his name anymore. He's Paul Adams now. You see, we've adopted him as our child. But now that's a parable. It shows what God has done for us. Insolent, ungrateful, and rebellious. We killed his son through our sins. And he has reached out and taken those who will trust him unto himself and adopted us into his family and he begins his work in us through his reigning power renewing us and making us into his sons and daughters showing to the world that Christ lives in us. Let us stand in prayer. O God, our Heavenly Father, we bless thee for the gift of faith, which you put in our minds and hearts, which tells us that we can trust Jesus. Trust him to be the Savior who takes away our sins. Trust him to be the comforter who keeps us through all of the vicissitudes of life. Trust him to teach us and to lead us in the right way. O God, we pray with St. Paul that thou wilt cause the words of Christ to dwell in us richly, accomplishing his purposes in our minds and hearts and lives. Help us to show to the world what real Christians are like, that we are committed to the utter lordship of Christ, Help us to be able to say with St. Paul, Christ is life. And all that I live for is him. And help us to show his love and concern to others that they may know and love him too. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father In the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.